0: Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Today we have an interview with Dr. Lee Newmeyer, who attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine and completed her residency in general surgery at the University of Arizona, where among other leadership roles, she became their first female full-time faculty member in the Department of Surgery. Dr. Newmeyer has also been president of the Association for Surgical Education. This episode is hosted by Jessica Liu and Bernadette White. They discuss the key career decisions Dr. Newmeyer made to get to where she is today, the evolution of leadership roles, and the importance of mentorship for women in surgery. This episode was edited by Patience Timmy and produced by Alex Speak. Let's get started. Dr. Newmeyer, tell us a little about yourself, where you
1: grew up, and
0: how you got to where you are
1: today. How much time do we have? (laughs) I was born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska, it's a nice small college town. My father was a general surgeon there for 40-some years, a true general surgeon with skin and its contents being his uh, domain, and my mom uh, was a med tech. When I was in third grade, they got divorced, though, So, but I was still raised in Lincoln. When I was in high school, my mom got a dream job to go work in Colorado, so I moved out there for high school, went to college, and was pretty sure that I didn't want to be a high school biology teacher if I didn't go to medical school and wasn't sure that I really wanted to go to medical school, so first I started in physics and then decided that physics was a little beyond what my mind was going to be able to do when you got beyond the basic stuff so ended up doing engineering as an undergraduate which I really liked because it was a lot of math and physics in that and then applied and got into medical school and um, worked as a intern engineer at Tektronix which is an oscilloscope is the back end of like a heart monitor you know the machine that you see in the ICU that's what they're famous for making is oscilloscopes they make many other things too so I worked as an intern engineer and decided that I would rather be taking care of patients. So luckily got into medical school, went to Baylor College of Medicine, loved it there, thought that I would like to be a general surgeon, was told that in order to be a good general surgeon, I had to do every other night call for five years. I said, no, thank you. And so I looked at all the specialties and decided initially that the best one for me would be otolaryngology. Um, As you know, I have ear problems, and so I thought that would be good. My mom has Meniere's disease. So I applied and matched an ENT at UCSF. Still not sure how that happened. Went there, met my husband who was in a preliminary surgery position. He had thought he wanted to do neurosurgery, but the last minute decided he wanted to do general surgery. So for lots of different reasons, we ended up in two third-year general surgery spots down at the University of Arizona, which was really a great transition for us. I finished general surgery there, he went on to do vascular there, and then we moved to Utah for him to do um, cardiac, but I just wanted to be a general surgeon. I wanted to go into academics because I knew if left to my own devices, I would probably learn nothing more. After residency, I really just wanted the simulation of being around medical students and residents, actually as much medical students as residents, right? Like For me, the medical students were great. Uh, Both in Arizona and then when we moved to Utah, I was a clerkship director. I like medical student education, as you can tell from being president of the ASC. Then gradually went up through the ranks, landed my job in Tucson in 2014. I've just celebrated my fifth anniversary, and now I'm looking for my next adventure.
0: Congratulations. Congratulations. So, you know, looking at, obviously, your impressive CV and your role as a leader... Um, One of the statistics that we pulled up here is that according to the 2018 AAMC data, women account for uh, 16% of medical school deans, 18% of department chairs, and 25% of full professors, which is not much higher than about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, reflecting on your journey to become part of that 12% uh, of female chairs, can you pinpoint any career decisions you made along the way that helped you get to where you are today?
1: Was that female chairs of departments of surgery or female chairs overall? I think that was overall department of surgery chairs in January of 2014 there were had only ever been six or seven women who'd ever been chairs of departments of surgery so within that year 2014 through 2015 there were we got up to about a dozen and now there's about 22 24 the most important things uh, to do are you've always got to do the work. And to succeed in academic surgery, you have to publish and you have to get funding and you have to try to get independent funding. I went, I think the key decisions for me were When I finished, so I didn't do a fellowship, I didn't do any research years, but when I finished residency, I had two great mentors, and they uh, set me up with a basic science lab. I was, interestingly, trying to grow breast cancer in mice, and it really is a model that only recently got better, but I just, after six months in the lab, I was like, I'm not doing this. This is just not for me. So I went to one of my mentors, his name is Charlie Putnam, and... He had just read an ad in, I believe, Science Magazine for the the on-the-job, on-campus program at the University of Michigan School of Public Health to get a degree in clinical research design and statistical analysis. And he said, I think you ought to do this. I read through the curriculum, I thought, this looks like this is perfect. So I applied to the program and when I called, they accepted me and then I was calling to get some logistics and it required a trip one trip a month for 22 months up to ann arbor uh, from tucson initially and then from salt lake when we moved there so that set me up really well so that was a two-year course definitely worth it learned in two years what it would have taken me 10 years otherwise and that set me up really well to land into the the hernia trial and run that you you have to do the work you can't expect to get promoted and get into these other positions without doing some of this other work. I also managed to choose organizations early on uh, to be active in that were relatively young and not the, the old hierarchical system. So the Association of Women's Surgeons, Association for Surgical Education, I think are still largely participatory, meaning like ASE, if you want to be on a committee, you just show up. You don't have to be appointed to that committee by someone. And that made it welcoming to somebody like me who's willing to put in some work, but wouldn't necessarily, you know, I I don't have a pedigree like Harvard, so I think you really just have to put your mind to it and then look for opportunities, and some people will open the door or the window a crack, and it's your job, if that opens, to get your foot in there and then get the rest of your body in there and push that door wide. Definitely
0: great point and do the work. Do you feel like since you first assumed the role as one of the earlier female department chairs, that the role has evolved or how do you per- think the perception of the role is today? Of a department chair? Of a female department chair specifically. You know, and even from the perspective of you as a department chair for hiring, I think that, you know, there's been criticism now that we're trying to get more women in leadership positions and that is not necessarily
1: merit-based. Almost like a backlash. I would say that most of us who ended up in these roles are more than qualified to be in them and more qualified than a lot of our our colleagues. But I, I don't think it's really evolved. I think what's evolving is what is a department chair role. It's different now than it was 10 years ago. Leadership style is kind of gender-blind, although there's there's this great book I've been reading. It's called, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And you could substitute a lot of different things in there, but it has to do with... uh, He talks a lot in this book. It's written by an Argentinian man who talks about the, a lot of stuff that went on in Argentina, but also the fact that we often, when we're looking at leaders, we mistake confidence for competence. And we've known for ages that women are hired more on what they've done than what their potential is. But I would say of the women department chairs across the country generally are very, very well qualified. His, his point in the book is, a lot. it's not that all women are better leaders than all men, It's just that the women who make it to the top right now have to have been at least at the top of the game and a little bit higher i I equate it to residencies so it used to be for there were very few women in residency and you had this is my my perception of it although only my perception of it like starting 10 years out from residency is that the average woman had to perform at a higher level than the average men in most surgery residencies and it was not at the places where I trained but I had heard people say this was very bad in 1990 something I heard somebody say well we took a bunch of women or two women and it didn't work out so we're never taking another woman and I was like well you've also had men that didn't work out and but What if you said we're never taking another man? Like that makes no sense. So I think because there was this differentiation. Now remember, these are averages and generalizations, but because women had to perform this higher level that if you had a woman who was performing at the average level of the average surgery resident, it was seen as not doing as well. So I think that is why it was a little bit harder to get up through. And there were lots of times when people um, say things to you and you just kind of have to say, okay, fine if I make a big deal about this, it's not gonna do well for me in the end, nor is it gonna do well for women in surgery. Absolutely. So
0: you've devoted a lot of your uh, research time to qualitative research on leadership, particularly looking at women in leadership
1: roles. I think what drives me and what drives Amalia is um, trying to make it better for people coming behind us. So I went from this amazing situation in Arizona as a junior faculty member, where I had two uh, strong mentors who were also my supervisors, and they were completely dead men, completely dedicated to my success. Actually, there were two main ones, and there were like four other people who were always looking out for me. And that doesn't include my medical school mentors and things like that. But you know, have that. And then I went as a drag-along spouse. I say drag-along because was dragged. Uh, to Utah and didn't have that same support. Mm -hmm. Now, to their benefit, they didn't know me. I am a little more than the average person in somebody who's willing to speak up and, you know, make a fuss and probably stir the pot. So looking back, I can understand why the reception might not have been positive. But I was also the first woman full-time faculty member at the University of Arizona in the Department of Surgery. I was the first woman assistant professor, the first woman associate professor, the first tenured woman faculty member in the Department of Surgery, and the first full professor, Rebecca Myers, because she had done a fellowship, was hot on my tails. Because I had gone from a really good situation to one where I didn't feel as supported, I really, Amali and I really wanted to try to determine what are the barriers and the things that help, and we only talked to successful women we would like to talk to successful men, we found in m- much of our work that the problems for many men was, were similar to the female's problems, especially of younger generations where work-life integration is more important, generationally.
0: She leads us very well into our next question. It sounds like you had some mentors, especially male mentors. And so, you know, some of your work as well talks about how women mentorship is important Mm -hmm. and crucial. Um, I think there was recently a somewhat controversial article that came out talking about how some men, given the Me Too movement, have found it difficult to mentor women. Mm -hmm. Um, We were curious on your thoughts on how that impacts based on your work. I mean, I think having men mentors is valuable and similarly having female as well, but
1: But I think that's, uh, I think it's now just they're saying something about it, meaning there's always been some men who are perfectly comfortable mentoring women and others who aren't. And what I would say with that is, so for instance, my mentor, Charlie Putnam, told me when I got to Arizona as a third year resident, he said, after about six or eight months, he said, you know, it's always been my dream to have a woman faculty member here at Arizona and you're gonna be it. I mean, he was planning that from, you know, and he's incredibly supportive of women and underrepresented minorities, like go go to the mat for you, but um, you've got to seek out mentors who have mentored somebody who looks different from them and has a track record with that and is comfortable with that diversity of, of mentees. I suspect that it's not too much different now. And those who have always been committed to that are going to continue to do that, but For me, the more I can make the path clear. You guys hike it all? You know, Mm -hmm. there is kind of the universal mark of where the trail is, right? Which is the stone stack. And that's what I'm trying to do is stack the stones and make sure people know what the, the maps, the different ways to get to success can be. And it doesn't always have to be a traditional one. And how do you work all this other stuff in? What I haven't figured out yet, but I think there needs to be, something about how I would like to get some credit for the three children we had during this process. Meaning that it's one thing to have three kids or seven kids or however many you want and have a spouse at at home, traditionally a wife, you know, who's used to doing, you know, all those things that stay-at-home moms normally do. I would never, I can't be a stay-at-home mom because it would drive me absolutely batty, but uh, and I have great respect for women who do that, but I also know that the amount of lifting that my husband and I both did, but a lot of it falls to the mom, is different, and so I want credit that during the time when I was getting promoted running the hernia study, you know, we had three kids in three years, and they're all functioning adults now, so want credit for school, that, right? huh?
0: One of them is in med school, right? Mm-hmm.
1: She's a third-year medical student. Yeah.
0: That also leads us very nicely <laughs> into. Uh, we wanted to ask your perspective on family planning issues with women in surgery, mm-hmm. especially at you know our stage as trainees, yeah. medical mm-hmm. students, residents. Um, the perception of family planning for women and how we overcome that barrier as we advance yeah. in our careers.
1: I think we ought to talk about two things. Number one is there's a lot of people who decide not to have kids, and that's great, too. They usually have a lot of other things they want to try to plan in with their life. I think Amalia is a great uh, role model for that. I have a couple other. Uh, there were a couple of residents I remember who kept always charting up. okay, another reason not to have kids. But if you if you want kids and want to have them, I think the advice is, number one, there's never a perfect time to have them. And even if you thought there was a perfect time, your parts might not be in cooperation. I would also say, name your situation. I have a friend who's been in that situation, okay. You wanna adopt as a single parent. I got that person for you. Miriam Curette. her daughter, Tatiana, she adopted as a single parent. Uh, Wanna have, you know, Want to go to medical school when your kids are toddlers or when your kids are junior high, you name it, I got it. Have kids during medical school, during residency, before medical school, you know, you name it, it, it's workable. And I think it just depends on you and your partner or you alone. It's hard, hard to plan it. So you just got to figure that out. I got pregnant during my husband's last six months of his ninth year of training. And I wanted to try to get pregnant before that because I was getting older, but it worked out just fine. And the nice thing about that is we were both uh, attendings once we had our daughter, and that gave us much more flexibility financially. My husband and I were lucky enough to both finish uh, college and medical school with no loans. And that's because of the time frame that we were in and the choices that we and our parents made, which were, we both are state-educated people. And I happened to go to medical school in Texas where the out-of-state tuition at Baylor my first year was at $500 less than the in-state tuition at Colorado and then I got, uh, my dad bought a place for me to live which was very cheap at the time and then my tuition dropped to $300 a year. So I paid less than $6,000 in tuition for medical school.
0: If only it was still like that. Yes,
1: it's not, I know. <laughs>
0: if only. It's $40,000 a
1: year at Utah, in-state. 80 here. Oh yeah, here. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I
0: think the tuition card is like 50, like Yeah. The cost of living yeah. is Oh yeah, time. I was only yeah. talking tuition. Yeah, Yes, but Even I'm 50. So, just 50. So. <laughs> well, I think that's about all the time we have for right now. Thank you so much for your time. You. We really, really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser Podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcasts at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.